Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On July 11th of last year, protests broke out all over Cuba over several issues, ranging from lack of food and medical care to the general state of oppression. For a few weeks there, the world's eyes were on the island, and the prospect of a free Cuba seemed to be within grasp. But as humans tend to do, they lose interest and thus turn their gazes to other matters and distractions. The socialist dictatorship probably knew that would happen, and so became more brazen in their oppression of the Cuban people when we weren't looking, especially those who embarrassed them on the world stage. To help us put names and faces on just a few of those who, as I write this, are enduring prison, beatings, and worse, is Vicky Criallo. Vicky wears many hats, but one of the hats she wears is while trying to get the true condition of Cubans out to the world's ears. First of all, do you mind introducing yourself? Like, tell us who you are, where you're located, what you do for a living, how you got into the Cuban cause, and all that. My name is Victoria Criallo. Most people call me Vicky. I prefer people call me Vicky. Because? Why not Victoria? Because my mom used to yell at me, and when she got really serious, she would say, Victoria. Everything was great when it was Vicky. Once it turned Victoria, it was very serious. (laughs) Although Victoria is a pretty badass name. Yeah, so I'm a director. Uh, I direct in theater and in film. And I was uh, born in Miami, Florida. I recently just moved back to Miami, Florida after living in New York for a bit. And uh, the Cuban cause, is, it's hard not to be part of the Cuban cause when you grow up in a house with two grandparents, two parents, an aunt, two dogs, and everybody's bleeding, breathing, thinking Cuba at all times. Your, your dogs so, fled Cuba as well? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I remember them on the news when they picked them up on the shores. Uh, yeah. Very sweet. Okay, so t- today you're going to help us. Uh, talk about some of the fallout from July 11th. On the podcast, we've talked about what happened or how it happened, but I wanted to talk about some of the faces that, I mean, there's so many. I I don't know, uh, you probably can tell me about how many they estimate have been imprisoned. Present to us one person to start off with, to kind of give us their story and how did they uh, end up in prison Uh, because of those protests? Well, first and foremost, it it should be known that there are above, I I don't have the specific number, but it's over a thousand people that are are political prisoners on the island right now. I mean, one one simple one that I think is the easiest entry point for anybody who is getting even more involved in understanding Cuba is, for example, Michael Osorbo, who was actually in prison before July 11th, but was in prison for um, writing co-writing the song Patria y Vida, which becomes this anthem. I mean, we hadn't had an anthem like that since Willy Chirino wrote um, Ya Viene Llegando, right? Which is, Cubans can tend to be a broken record and, and uh, <laughs> Patria y Vida kind of <laughs> refurbished us. Yeah, so I 
antes de que el movimiento San Isidro continúe puesto. la misma la seguridad metiendo prisma Something that, that always breaks my heart as an artist myself is we watched as a group of people who have been talking about Cuba and, and fighting for Cuba for a long time. We saw these people win a Latin Grammy. And while that is happening, Michael Osorbo is sitting in prison for that very song. Y el Latin Grammy va para Patria y Vida. De Semer Bueno, El Funky, Gente de Zona, Adam González, Beatriz Luengo, Michael Osorbo y Yotuel. It's just all forms of freedom of expression. And of course, um, the other person who's in jail right now, who is very well known in the, in the community is Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara. Uh, both of them are members of the San Isidro movement. And he's in, he's actually today, there's news that he is actually not doing well health-wise. He is in a maximum security prison called Guanajay. And he's in prison. He didn't even get to join the protest. As he was making his way to join the protest on July 11th, uh, he was taken into jail because of the leader type of leader that he is in, in, in the community. If you don't mind, a couple things. Pretend like people listening here have zero idea about what's going on down there. Maybe they've seen a few movies. They think because they saw The Godfather Part Two, they understand Cuba and all right. that. And there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there. So... With the song Patria y Vida, explain why that's so important and what the song was saying and how it became such a phenomenon, uh, even though obviously I guess they have no record label and just what an act of you know, punk it was as opposed to yeah. the punks in America who are in the suburbs living in comfort. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is a long history with um, hip hop and, and obviously messages of, of freedom, right? we all know from the United States of America, but there's a there's a whole period of time in Cuba in which uh, hip hop starts taking form and it becomes this automatic position against the the government, right? And so to say, Patria Vida has a long history before it comes in there. And so there's artists like Los Aldeanos and Raul del Escuadron, and there's all these artists that have gotten um, really banished by the government because they're, music is is totally against the government. And so what happens with Patria y Vida is that the, the term Patria y Vida is a play on the Cuban communist term Patria o Muerte, which is motherland or death, right? And so the Cuban government has always, and like any communist regime, is constantly putting you in a position of a, if you're either with us or you're against us, one of the two. And so what Padre Vida says is like, well, actually I want motherland and life. Uh, I want to live. It starts taking on and retaking ownership of that phrase. And so like wildfire, it just started picking up and it was, uh, it was an important moment because there was artists, you know, Gente de Sona, which is one of the bands that people tend to know in the American world, mainly because they've done stuff with Pitbull. Like you can maybe hear a song you've heard of Gente de Sona. Dale. So there's Gente de Sona, who is um, politically, they were prior to that very, sometimes wishy-washy, like sometimes they would do concerts in Cuba. And so them coming out and being the first kind of voices that you hear 
uh, on the track, you're like, oh my God, they're making a stance. The, the, here are people that are making this true stance against the, the government. And all of a sudden, they start adding um, musicians like Michael Osorbo and El Funky, who are living in the island at the time as they were recording it. And so what's happening is that the bridge has happened. I think that that's the power in the song, the bridge of the exile, the, the Cuban in the, in the diaspora, and the Cuban inside the island, they're communicating. And so this song just takes over and it's just on repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat until it becomes a, an important part of the narrative of what I, I hope to be is, is the last chapter of us achieving the freedom in Cuba. So, uh, Luis Manuel, as you mentioned, he's another major figure. I, I would think he was the most recognizable. I, I know that some major magazine in America had recognized him. Uh, and maybe you can talk about that. It kind of give us a backdrop of his story, how he uh, it was an artist, did various things like sculpture and what have you, to becoming almost the face of a lot of this, especially with San Isidro, uh, but this just the whole pro-liberty movement in Cuba. Luis Manuel, as you mentioned, he was he was recently named in Times 100 Most Influential People, one of the one of the members on that list, which is a big deal. Again, somebody who is on this list while also sitting in prison at the same time is this constant dichotomy with with what it means to be a Cuban dissident within the island. And the story of Luis Manuel, which is you know he is a leader in in that movement, but there are there's a, an enormous group of artists that got together, and the birth of of Movimiento San Isidro really starts when Cuba starts doing this like new constitution. They're trying to refurbish the constitution, which they constantly do, which is making rules work for the government. And it's a very hot mess of a, of a document. And in that, I want to say that it's decree 349. I, I might have to fact check myself, but I want to say it's decree 349, which solidifies and puts on paper what had been known for the past 60 years in Cuba prior to that decree, which was, uh, there's a very famous speech that Fidel says, within the revolution, everything outside of the revolution, nothing. And it, it was the censorship within the art. Again, not that it was something new. It was something that was just understood, but it was not on paper. And so from that decree being up for vote, for vote uh, well, the entire constitution, it was the yes or no, um, but that going up for vote, Movimiento San Isidro starts forming and it's all these artists and they're saying, no, you can't tell me what I can and can't make. And so what's interesting about this is that they got, and something that I find to be very successful about Movimiento San Isidro is that they were very focused in the thing that was important to them, right? They were very focused. I don't think they went in there and like, we're going to go free Cuba. They were like, why are you going against my freedom of expression? And so the group forms and in talks with a lot of members of Movimiento San Isidro, you start understanding that it was people, not only people like Luis Manuel, uh, which is someone of the streets, is someone of the, what they consider like the streets, what is outside of the organized arts, if you will, right? They approve of who gets to go into the um, art institutions and who doesn't. He was very much excluded constantly. And when you say uh, they, you're talking about the Communist Party. Correct. Okay. The dictatorship. It's very clear that you get vetted and who gets into these schools, who gets the opportunities and who doesn't, right? It's not money necessarily. It's a political alignment 
that gets you moving. And what happened with Movimiento San Isidro is that you have the people who are from the streets who are the unlikables, the untouchables, the don't look at them, mixing with people who were inside themselves of, of, uh, of the system. It seems to me that it seems to be hard to exist truthfully outside of the system, but all of a sudden these worlds have merged together. And one of the people we've interviewed, uh, they mentioned that that even it was finding one of their own also talking against them that kind of confused the Cuban government. So that's where really they get their power um, and get their attention. You probably should also explain the name San Isidro. That's a part of Havana, correct? Correct, correct. And uh, and Luis Mas uh, house, which was the the headquarters, is in San Isidro, and so that is where they came up with that name, and and it's really their fort. So he was one of the uh, folks arrested after July 11th, but he wasn't necessarily the organizer of that. It seemed to be a, a spontaneous organization, but is it because they're punishing anybody who had defied them in the past, the Communist Party? Yeah, I mean, I think that for them is total control, right? Luis Ma didn't wasn't able to join fully the protests. Jose Daniel Ferrer, who is a, a, a known opposition um, dissident, uh, he was on his way as well, also got taken before he joins. And so it's very clear that their plan is take anybody who can plan something, take anybody who's a leader, take anybody... And and then some anybody who's a potential backup leader, they're, they're just going to arrest anybody who's going against them because they need total control. And so Luis Ma is very likable. People really, really like him. And so people will fight for him and people identify with him. And so in doing so, you have to take, you know, it, it's a strategic move. Uh, they have been strategically moving like that for the past 63 years. And, and that, I think that's why they took him. That's why they didn't let Michael Osorbo out. Um, why they've been slowly pushing out every member of Movimiento San Isidro now that most of them, if not all of them are in exile or in prison. So it's, it's their strategy is to make sure that nobody can organize. Don't they think it, they might look bad doing this? You know, a prisoning artist for you basically just expressing themselves or do they trump up the charges to make it about something else to save face with the world? Right. I mean, I think that uh, one thing that has been interesting, they've been doing this for forever and somehow they still continue to get away with it. They are also sitting in the human rights council along with Russia. So, you know, <laughs> of the UN. So who's really, you know, it's ridiculousness, right? It's utter ridiculousness. And I think that at this current point, where they are right now, I, I think that there are no Fs given, <laughs> honestly. Um, there are different charges. They put charges that are not, you know, they, they put charges uh, on other political prisoners like Saili Navarro and, and Felix Navarro saying that there was attacks. All they did was go and ask questions and they got arrested. And so... They they will come up with whatever they want to say why it's there. They also have they constantly stage and change propaganda. You know they they are a propaganda machine, right? And they are experts at this. They are really good at it. I mean, I've even seen friends of mine posting their propaganda. One in particular is you know all all about how they talk about you know i remember them talking about like all the doctors that they sent out for covid and i remember a friend posting like wow look at cuba just sending out doctors i'm like 
first of all, let's not even go down the rabbit hole of what human trafficking with doctors is because that's what that is. Right. And two, months later, the entire medical health system that's so great is is crumbling. And so, you know, I think that part of the issue is that not not a lot of people know what's actually happening in Cuba, and you have. Um, you have a propaganda machine that's really good at pushing those things forward and then the grassroots teams trying to tell the truth just constantly combating and they're overshadowing us at times. Right. And plus there's their willing, I guess, accomplices in the West that are their cheerleaders for all of this. Those are the questions I have as to like, it's very interesting to me that, you know, the, the person that we've been talking about, two of the people that we've been talking about are black Cubans. Right. Black They're, Lives Matter supports the, the communist regime. And so so there's no reason why this shouldn't matter, like why this shouldn't, why this is a point of like everything, you know, we're against all of this everywhere else in the world except in Cuba. And Cuba, you know, I, I'm, I'm very curious to know why there is this sort of like hands off uh, Cuba thing. What is, well, when it comes to Cuba, we're just not going to talk about right. it, right? I mean, from a history point of view, the left and the West was very much against anti Semitism and, of course, the Holocaust. But when in the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin started purging Jews from the medical profession, uh, imprisoning lots of them. The uh, Jews weren't allowed to visit their homeland in Israel. A lot of the ones who, the refuseniks, as they called them, they were uh, imprisoned for protesting about this. There was utter silence from the left and the West. I'd say that it's nothing new. Um, yeah. So among the folks that they have arrested in the aftermath of July 11th, a lot of them have been uh, under the age of 18. Like some of them like not even have hit, or maybe they're right in there about hitting puberty, and they're going to prison. So give me an example of that, and what again, what's the, uh, the communist dictatorship's justification for that? I've been doing a little bit of research because, you know, a lot of a lot of the conversation are like you're they're just saying like there's kids, there's kids. And so as I was digging deeper and, and seeing like there's people from 13 years of age, like Brandon uh, David Becerra and people who turned 18 in prison, uh, like Raulan Castillo. Raulan Castillo was 17 years old when he got arrested for participating in the July 11th movement. Um, and his mother has cancer. He has a one-year-old, now two-year-old kid um, at home. And uh, he just got sentenced. And, you know, when I believe it was one of their mothers that said, like, why are you taking, I have not given consent for my child to be taken anywhere. They said, I have it here. Mm -hmm. They said, you have no right to know about your son. Wow. And so there is this utter... I mean, the Cuban word for this is decado, like utter shamelessness at arresting children for the total indoctrination and making sure that this isn't spreading, right? Like this has been true. This is why parents send their kids through the Peter Pan exodus um, because of this conversation of like the state owns your children, which is, you know, it's not that they necessarily grab them, but in moments like this, they say you have no rights over your children. They belong to us. And so it's heartbreaking and, again, something that doesn't get spoken about often enough. Does anybody know 
how all these folks that you've mentioned, how they're doing, because obviously it's hard for them to get communications out. I mean, if they're lucky, they can find a sympathetic guard, I suppose. But So, I mean, Guadalajara is always uh, doing research and, and maintaining and like constantly in conversation, I think, with the Cuban people and understanding what is happening. Um, we obviously tend to know more about the, I hate, I don't have a better term for this, but the celebrity dissidents. Mm-hmm. We tend to know more about them because we know where they are and and how you know how they're doing, but there are over a thousand people in jail right now, who you know get to be. Some people get their families to be able to talk to them. Some people can't. There, there's a lot of trials and and um, and by trials I, I fully say that in air quotes because uh, there is no fair trial in Cuba, but. To check up on them is is there are people who are who are doing that work, but I will say that it is it's very individual to each person. Both uh, Saili Navarro and Felix Navarro are father daughter, and Felix Navarro was actually one of the dissidents that was in jail for about eight years uh, during the Black Spring in back in 2003. Okay, explain and- what the Black Spring was. Sure. Uh, the Black Spring was they did uh, the Cuban. I say they, but every time I say they, I mean the Cuban government. The Cuban government uh, took 75 dissidents and jailed them. Um, and after a lot of conversation with um, the Catholic Church and Amnesty International and all of that, a lot of them were forced into exile. One of which was Jose Daniel Ferrer's brother was um, in exile. The last two to get out of that. Uh, of that imprisonment was Jose Daniel Ferrer and Felix Navarro, both leaders of dissident groups. And Felix Navarro is older in age right now. Like he is, he is definitely up in his 60s. And so the day after uh, the July 11th movement, he went to check on people, to check on what happened to members of his organization. Like where were they? They arrested him. Mm-hmm. And his health has been flailing now. So since July all the way to now, right? I think it's been eight months. So his his uh, health has been flailing. Siley similarly went to go check on what members of organizations, how her father was doing. Boom, they arrested her. And she has now, uh, she has eight years. Uh, she has been sentenced to eight years in prison and Felix Navarro to nine. This is just more Cuba being Cuba in the sense of, just even asking, just even the act of trying to figure out who you're, just the act of asking for questions can get you jailed. Mm. And it's a very tense time. You know, we know that we live in a world where there's war between Russia, Russia and Ukraine and gas prices and Cuba is, is a boiling pot right now. And so it's when they probably get the most aggressive, mm. I would say. You can just comment on this if you want to, but I noticed that when the war broke out, when Russia invaded Ukraine, that almost every one of the Cuban human rights groups said, like, this is awful. We're in solidarity with the Ukrainians. We understand. But you don't see that returned uh, with a lot of other groups. Like, it seems like Cuba is always kind of by themselves. You see a little bit of, like, maybe the... The Hong Kongers, every once in a while, will say something about uh, the Cubans. They understand their pain, so to speak. Why do you think that is? And why do you think 
Americans are, you know, they're all, they're changing the avatars to put the Ukrainian flag. And, you know, that, that's a good thing, I think. But again, what's the difference? Why Ukraine, why is it wrong for them to be mistreated and not the Cuban people? I, I have also thought about that. And I think one of them, one of the main reasons is knowledge on the subject, right? Even the most basic knowledge. I think we know that Ukraine is a, is a democratic state and that Russia is going is invading a democratic state and trying to impose something on Ukraine. Even if you just view that, you are like, oh, there's a right, there's a wrong, that's what it is. But with Cuba, it is a constant mess of a story, which there shouldn't be, because if you just do a little bit of research, you can find all the truth is out there. But there is this constant like, oh, but I thought Cuba was good, and I thought there was good health care and education there. What are you talking about? I thought I thought we're the ones. I thought it was the embargo. I thought so there's all this mess. And, and sometimes we as individuals do it with other things that we don't know much about. We're like, oh, I don't know anything about this. So let me just take a step back. But I think that that confusion is what causes some people to take a step back and not necessarily know what they were, how they're going to respond to it, which is why I think a big part of our job, and it's a, it's a job that I've taken on because I'm an artist, is to tell Cuban stories and take counts of all Cuban stories, of all exile stories, and, and really have a good database of that so that we're really sharing the truth out there. It is frustrating. It is absolutely frustrating. I think it is unfortunate that we don't get the same support at times, but for some reason we have been dealt this card, this hand, and I think that we're going to figure it out. I know it sounds very optimistic, and I am an optimist. And I think what it's important for everybody to know is that it's not just us that depends on it. Venezuela depends on us. Nicaragua depends on us. Latin America depends on the Cuba problem being solved. And Cuba has done a very good job at hiding how far their tentacles go. But it's important that we all expose that so that, you know, the world knows why Cuba is important and why caring about Cuba is just as important as caring about Ukraine. don't mind talk about some of your own adventures and in being involved in this effort to educate the world we'll say i remember being very hopeful after july 11th because there was so much attention uh, happening for once about that situation where before it was just people sharing stuff on social media but you know the networks were finally reporting it albeit they were some of them were twisting what was actually happening at least with your friend uh, rosa maria paya and uh, you and Vanessa Garcia got to go uh, in front of Congress and talk. Talk about that experience and the reception. If you would have told nine-year-old Vicky that she would be sitting behind Rosa Maria Paya and watching her give an address to Congress, I think I think I would have thought you would be lying. And thankfully, my face was cut off because I was like tearing up the whole time. <laughs> but because I knew how important this moment was, you know, and I I think I learned. A lot of things. One, it was a confirmation that uh, Americans view the world through democratic colored glasses. And what I mean by that is it's very hard for people who don't fully know what it's like to live in a totalitarian communist uh, state 
to fully understand what you're talking about. And so I think that in moments, there was a lot of support for the most part, albeit more from the Republican side. That was a little bit disheartening, just that it was just one side. However, I will say that, of course, people who are representing Florida from <laughs> the Democratic side were also in support. So, you know, I think that I, I cannot detach the fact that there are some other things that are attached to why these people cared about Cuba. However, You'll take it. I will take it and because it matters. And and so I do think it was frustrating that some of the conversation at that point was turning back into the embargo being one of the ways. And the embargo has constantly been the tool that the Cuban government uses to vilify and, and to make things their own. It was an important moment. And I think that something that mattered about not only just that moment, but everything afterwards has been the amount of work. I, I think that that moment revitalized a lot of Cuban Americans, one that had not delved into this because it was too painful for the families and the families haven't talked about it. If it was like a Marvel movie, it was like all the Cuban Americans <laughs> just got engaged. Like all of a sudden people just found their Cubanness again. Yeah. And I think that's important. And something I want to add, and I know I'm very long winded, but I think it's important to know that, you know, the narrative now is that everything has died down, right? But it's actually quite the opposite. There has been 2,267 protests in Cuba post July 11th, only in the last eight months. Prior to that, there was 1,395. So exponentially, there has been an entire growth in protest and, and dissent in the island for themselves. And I think that what happens is that when that communication barrier constantly has been put, you know, nothing's happening there. So everything's calm. That's been a lie. Right. And now social media helps us know that it's that it's a lie. And so I think that I still have hope. And I think that there's ebbs and flows, there's highs and there's lows, but the journey's not over and, and we're, we're closer than we think. Something that I've seen, and this is why this is the importance of storytelling. And who's in charge of telling the truth, the true story? Um, because sometimes when I remove, uh, in talking with friends, you know, I, I lived in New York for, for six years. I'm an artist. So you can imagine like a big group of my friends are liberals. So. Right. <laughs> but whenever I would, I would just sit down and explain what's happening and what are the things and what are the keys, you know, it, when you remove all the, that fog of red or blue or when you remove that and you just talk about the facts, people tend to align on the right side of things. You know, people believe in truth, believe in justice. And, and that is the that is their heart. Their heart is wants justice for people. And so I think that when you remove all the fodder and you focus on that, it it is effective. And I at least in my personal close circle, I've had friends who have like, they're like, if you don't tell me about Cuba, I don't know what's happening in Cuba, let alone like all the Cuban Americans are fighting with each other about what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But there's an entire group of people that ha hear nothing. When you are speaking to them and just telling them facts, trying not to color it, not trying not to do anything, just tell them these are all the things. I mean, it's just wrong. You wrote a song. How many songs have not been written in, in the American music, you know, in American music and diaspora, how many things have not been written and nobody has gone to jail for writing against the government, against the president, against anything. Right. You know, a song like This Is America by Childish Gambino would get him arrested in Cuba really quickly. Right.
the police. I yes. just cursed, but F the okay. police. I mean, there is literally an F the police in Cuban in, in, in Cuban songs. And that's definitely going to get them arrested. So I think that that sort of knowledge of like when you just put all the politics aside and focus on the facts, people will align on the right side because people do believe in justice. Society has decided what side is the good side and what side is the bad side. And it's flipped, right? It's always gone. There was a there was a period of time where the Republican was the good side and the the liberal was the was the bad side. Mm -hmm. But I think that we have to stop attaching ourselves to our to our political parties and start aligning with our values. Mm If we all just look at our values, we would probably align way more than what we think. And also, it's interesting to see how many people are willing to hand over freedom very easily without the knowledge of what it means to hand it over to somebody. Nos dijo a todos que aquí no habría devaluación. Suplente encargado de empeorar el desastre. En solo 100 días un paquetazo nos aplicaste. Tanto billete. You know, we see all this stuff on TV and, and on the internet, and you're like, oh man, that sucks. But, and when you want to do something about it, but you know, you feel kind of helpless. Like, what can you possibly do? I feel like some people have gotten cynical about the, the activists that are online and all they do is post, which I still think is important. But beyond reposting, news like this, uh, you know, the reality of what's going on in Cuba, what else can people do to help to actually affect change? So I think that there are multiple avenues. I always think about my friend Nick Jimenez always talks about doing what's inside of your daily abilities, right? I remember him writing about this or posting about this and I, and I thought about it. And I'm like, you know, that's that's such a smart way to think about it, because I was doing it without even noticing, right? I, I think my quote unquote activism, even though I'm not very comfortable with the word, like me being an activist, sure. but you know, if it smells like a dog, barks like a dog, yeah. walks like a dog, I guess, you know, I, I realized that my skills are storytelling and therefore that's more where my activism lies, right? Like that is the skill set that I have. I know how to use it and I know how to push myself out of there. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that if you're someone who has skills in the sense of like, if you're a lawyer, how can you help people? How can you help organizations? If you have finances, like how do you give your resources to the to the organizations like Cuba you know, that or like Center for a Free Cuba, like those organizations that are actually helping and have are set up to mobilize, right? I, I know that a lot of people criticize the posting, mm-hmm. but that all changed for me when that one Jewish friend of mine said, when you don't talk about Cuba, I don't know what's happening in Cuba. That changed a lot for me because I understood that somebody was getting a view. It was like a little hole in the wall that they were getting a little view into and even opening their curiosity. So if the only thing you can do that's inside your strength is the post. But outside of the post, it's donating money or helping people, connecting people together or translating or, you know, set, finding out who's doing humanitarian aid, although that's a little bit complicated, but joining what your resources are and using those uh, for the betterment, I think is is the best advice that I have gotten and, and continue to give. Yeah. 
If you're interested in hearing more about the events of July 11th, give In the Corner, back by the woodpile 254 listen, where Cuban-American historian Victor Triai gives his assessment of the events. Also, the aforementioned Nick Jimenez came back by the woodpile on 196 to talk not only Cuba matters, but about his time at Cigar Snob Magazine. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs> Por favor, le mundo.